Hey guys, hope you guys are doing well today. Thank you so much for tuning in into the InspoDepot podcast by Insporium Network. For those of you who don't know, my name is Reis and I am the founder of Insporium Network. So Insporium Network is an entertainment media network for professionals. And InspoDepot podcast is one of the pillar content that we have here on this channel. On this podcast, we have upcoming talents, upcoming creators, entrepreneurs, personalities and athletes to share their perspectives, to share their thoughts, to share their insights about their respective industries and how we can understand it better and how it will be helpful for us in our future. So yeah, without further ado, let's get into the podcast and I'll see you on the other side. What's up guys, welcome back again to another episode of the Inspo Depot podcast, episode 5. And today, we are joined by a very, very famous <laughs> business mogul, Mr. Azran Osman Rani. <laughs> Hi, nice to have you. Yeah. Nice to have you here. Like, yeah. I think oh, we've been planning for this podcast for so long. Yep. And like, um, finally we get to do it, like, I think five months down the road. Mm-hmm. Yeah, awesome. So why don't you introduce a bit about yourself to our fellow listeners? Okay, well, um, I'm Azran from KL. I've been building a number of businesses over the last 15, 20 years. And there are a few common themes. Number one, I look at businesses which are different from the traditional status quo. So first you have to understand an industry and think, well, what are the limitations, the shortcomings? Is there a completely different way of doing that? But secondly, where my interest lies is how do you make things much more affordable, much more accessible, and more convenient for the mass market? Hmm. So I'm not going to be great with premium brands, but I look at each um, service, whether it's like a highly regulated capital intensive business like the airline industry to a fast moving internet or media technology company and now health with Nalluri. We look at what's available in the market and we try to find ways of doing it much more affordably, much more accessible so that the mass market segment can have access to the same level of services that previously only people in the higher upper echelons of uh, the socioeconomic status can have access to. Is there any reason why you only look at new businesses or new startups or diff- um, something very new to the public mm-hmm. that you always do out into those um, industries? Well, maybe because I'm a restless soul. I, <laughs> I look at every industry and I think, you know, as a consumer myself, I get frustrated when I see certain things being done a certain way. And then I try to imagine, imagine if we could create a completely different model, right? Especially when people from within that industry says, cannot be done, mm. right? So for example, um, you know, people might think AirAsia as a brand stands for a culture that's dynamic and innovative and risk-taking. But the moment they became successful, they also had very fixed views about what is possible or what's not possible with the low-cost airline industry. And one of the things that they firmly believed back in 2007 was long haul doesn't make sense. When someone says it cannot be done, that's what excites me, right? Mm. And so you think, well, maybe there's a different way of looking at it because the advantage that I guess I have is that I start with a blank sheet of paper. I, I don't have any preconceived ideas because I've not been from that industry. So I go back to the first principles and look at it and think, hmm, is there a different way of looking at it, right? And so 
Sometimes you start without even having a solution, but you start by defining a problem and jump in and figure out as you build it. Let's talk about you before. Mm-hmm. Uh, you came in from various companies before. You were from uh, Booz Allen Hamilton. You were from McKinsey. Then right. you went to Bursa, right. Astro, and right. stuff like that. Right. Um, all of these are various. It's all different industries. Mm-hmm. And all these industries are not so-called similar at all. So what is your true passion? Well, as I said, first, I look at it differently. People think they're different. I look at it and I see very, a lot of similarities, right? Because the nature of the product may be different, but the philosophy of how do you create value for your customers is the same, right? How do you, for example, find ways to do something much cheaper? How do you find ways to do it much more convenient, much faster than it's been done before? And oftentimes, there are the same reasons why people do the same things from an industry. Because if they've been in that industry for 10 years, for 20 years, they get comfortable with the routine. They're not willing to challenge how they've done things before. Right? So that creates an opportunity for someone to say, hey, hang on, I see patterns. The same um, issues that you know, I might see in the airline industry, I saw it in television and broadcasting. You've been in all of these um, industries, so mm. is there any other industries that you probably want to explore? So my philosophy is I don't know what I'm going to do one year from now. Okay. Because I believe we live in a world that things are changing so fast. So I can't predict. I can't even predict five years out, not even 12 months out. But what I can be absolutely sure is what am I going to do over the next 30 days to have a real plan of action. And at the end of the 30 days, I'm going to learn what works. Okay, I'm going to keep doing that. What doesn't work? Well, I'm going to stop doing that. What have I learned that I'm going to do something different by tweaking and tweaking? And sometimes you reach a point where you might hop to a completely different industry because you start to observe so this is, this is my one philosophy, whether you are planning your career or whether you're running your business. Traditionally, the philosophy of planning your career business is we have a five-year plan, we have a 12-month plan, right? Our New Year's resolution. We want to do something for one year. And the moment you decide what that plan is, you stick to it. Correct. But the world has changed, right? From my experience, every single business plan that I put together, within two months of execution, everything has changed. And we're experiencing that now, right? Mm. Who would have thought in January that we'd be in this situation where there's a global pandemic, there's a global economic recession, there's you know, uh, you know, massive threats to the climate. So f- things are fundamentally changing. By not having a fixed plan, that creates flexibility. Correct. Right? So by focusing yourself to say, look, every 30 days, I'm going to almost reinvent or re-emphasize my viewpoint based on what I learn. I, I observe. I keep my eyes open. Right? What's going on? What do I keep and stick to do the same? What do I change? But most people, they don't change uh, until maybe at the most once a year. Mm. Right? Mm. But if you only try to change once a year, like you try to do... Uh, creative brainstorming exercise once a year, a strategic planning exercise once a year. 
But if your brain has been trained to do the same thing for 12 months, do you think suddenly once a year it's going to come up with creative ideas? Mm, You can't. So you have to train your brain to question and to look for new ideas every week, every month. Then it gets better at coming up with new ideas. Mm, mm, mm. And planning, therefore, can be dangerous. Planning creates tunnel vision, right? You look only in one way. You miss the new things that are happening on the sides. Would you suggest that businesses shouldn't plan or are you saying they should just constantly keep their eyes open whilst some way somehow yeah, sticking to their the, plan? The short answer is yes. And, and I'm being deliberately controversial because the way people have planned is they take too long to plan. They take three months, for example, to prepare a budget for the next year, to prepare the business plan, to submit it to the board, to get approval. By the time they go through all of that effort, they become so invested in the plan. And when you become so invested in your plan, you don't want to change it. Correct. Because it's almost like, well, I'm second-guessing myself. So the danger is when you fall in love with a plan. It's okay to plan, provided you are comfortable to throw away your plan and come up with a new plan every month. Mm -hmm. Oh, cool. But that requires us to have the humility to say, I don't know. The comfort to say, it's okay not to know. And the curiosity to say, if I don't know, how do I find out? How do I keep learning by observing, by watching, by connecting and talking to people? so that I'm getting new information much faster than everyone else. So I believe, especially as a startup, when you're trying to compete against big giants, you don't have scale, you don't have brand, you don't have capital, you don't have distribution. The only advantage we have is speed, our ability to move faster than anyone else. Because if I'm going to move only as fast as Singapore Airlines, if I was only going to move as fast as Netflix, will die before we even start. Correct. Speed is the only advantage a small player has. Mm-hmm. So you've got, to be learn- you've got to be willing to move fast. And okay, I move fast, boom, I hit a roadblock. Be prepared to completely shave, shift and throw away everything you've done and keep rebuilding. Mm-hmm. But people don't want to do this because they're comfortable with going in one direction. Do you think they are comfortable or do you think they are scared in a, in a way that there are a lot of other stakeholders involved with us with that particular company. Well, it's safe. So whether you call it safe, comfort, and scared, it's really the same thing. Mm-hmm. The essence is, I don't want to change. Mm-hmm. And by the way, that's a human, we are wired that way, right? So the brain receives 50 million sensory inputs every single minute. But we can only process seven or eight because there's just too many signals. Today, we live in a world where there's too many signals from our phones, from our laptops, from what we see with advertising. And the way the brain filters is it filters out everything that does not go against what it already believes. Mm -mm. So for example, if you were to interview someone to join your team, you think you're spending one hour to assess this candidate, Mm -hmm. but actually your brain has already decided in 10 seconds whether you like that person or (laughs) not. And for that whole one hour, the brain is pushing out every data point that goes against your gut belief and only keeping what it it already believes. Mm. So if you, from that 10 seconds, you're like, I like this guy, I'm only going to remember good positive things. Mm. If that first 10 seconds you don't like that person, you only remember all the negative things that candidate says. So that's how the brain works. Now, if you know how that brain works, you have to realize 
I've got to override that. Mm. If you allow the brain to go with that instinct, it will stick to doing the same thing, the safe thing, the repeatable things. And, mm. and there's no place to survive in a world that's rapidly changing. Correct, correct, awesome. Being the brain works in a certain way that it only pushes and emphasizes the thing that it wants to, yeah. it also correlates to things like motivation, yes. right? So, so for like yourself, you mm. also, back in the days where you started, not started, but like you led AHAX, yep. it's a new model where it's yep. a low-cost, long-haul yep. flight, right? Mm-hmm. So how do you motivate your team to follow a certain vision that you have for the company that no one else can see? Sure. Um, one of the important things that we have to do as a leader is to articulate a very explicit and clear vision. And that vision cannot be just big words. It needs to be able to be something that I can translate into my day-to-day actions. I'll give you an example. Before us, AirAsia had already come up with a slogan, now everyone can fly. It sounds nice, it sounds inspiring, but what do I do with it? I don't know. And so we then said, and we said, hmm, how do we make this real for our employees? Well, let's think about this. If you really want everyone to fly, what must happen? Number one, you need a lot of planes and you need to fly every destination. Correct. So that means scale becomes important. How do we find money to get more planes? How do we get more uh, permits and approvals to fly to every big city possible? And so that becomes important. The second part is, well, we have to be the most affordable airline in the world. So every cent that you save counts Mm -hmm. because affordability allows more people to be able to fly. But third, you can be the cheapest airline, but if you're not reliable, people are not gonna come back and fly with you. So you have to be a very reliable airline. And fourth, if you're affordable and you're reliable, but it's hard to use, you're not convenient, people are not gonna use you, right? So by taking that now everyone can fly and then breaking it down into, well, size is important, affordability is important, reliability is important, convenience is important, then people can say, okay, whatever we do tomorrow, does it help with one of these four things? Mm-hmm. Then you have to figure out how do I make it easy to remember? So the formula we came up with is one, two, three, four. One, we need to be big. We need to be a one billion US dollar company because if we're small, we're not gonna have enough planes, we're not gonna have enough destination. And so every dollar that we sell moves us closer to reaching the size goal that we set for ourselves. And we celebrate the first million dollars of revenue, the first 10 million, the first 100 million ringgit, then the first 100 million US dollars, then the first 1 billion ringgit, then the first 1 billion US dollars, which we did in six and a half years. Second, we need to be uh, in the airline industry to have a unit cost of two US cents per seat per kilometer. So the unit cost of an airline is defined by how many seats times how many kilometers the plane flies. And it just so happens that it's... um, measured in cents. Mm. So someone like Singapore Airlines is nine cents, US cents per seat per kilometer. Uh, Ryanair is five cents, AirAsia is four cents. We had to, well, we've got to be cheaper than even AirAsia, so we have to be two cents per seat kilometer. Wow, the lowest in the world. Mm. Three, three out of every four hours, the plane must be in the air. Every time you see the plane on the ground, bad. 
Every yeah. time you see the plane flying, good, good. Yeah. right? And generally, a Singapore Airlines, Cathay Pacific, Emirates, their planes may only be flying 12, 13 hours a day. We have to be 18 hours a day, right? In order to do that, the plane must be reliable. It must be on time. It must have technical reliability so that it can operate at the world's highest aircraft utilization rate. Mm-hmm. And for the simple people on the ground, if you see the plane on the ground, work hard to get it ready to fly again Mm-mm. because on the air good on the ground bad right so three out of four hours time. exactly it must be uh, used four out of five seats must be filled with happy people right and so every time you come into the plane if you see less than four out of five seats filled up bad right mm. we need to fill up the plane so very simple concepts and very easy to remember, right? A billion dollars in revenue, two US cents per seat kilometer, three or four hours the plane must be in the air, four out of five seats must be filled. Everybody gets it. Mm-hmm. Then you take that vision and you make it much more tangible for your team. So, oh, so. That, that's what we have to do as leaders. We live in a world that's very complex. We've got you know, cash flow statements and balance sheets to manage. We've got our brand and marketing plan. But if we cannot simplify it so that everyone in the organization understands it and they understand why it's important and they know, once I understand it, I know every work that I do, whether it's to clean the plane or to do this, does it help to get the plane on the air? Does it help to fill up the the seats? Hmm. Then you've created a vision that will empower your organization because it becomes real for them. It's similar to this... um they call it the North Star the metric. North Star. Yeah. yeah, the North Star metric. Absolutely. So, so that for is essentially the North Star metric yes, for exactly. Yeah. So everything that AsiaX does must fit that. Must fit, must some way somehow correct help. So that is why we don't do long term business plans because the moment you do long term business plans, you might say, okay. This year, we're going to have this number of planes and that number of destinations and this amount of revenue. But the world may change. Suddenly, there may be a global pandemic. What are you going to do? So the specific tactics and initiatives may change. But what will never change your whole existence is size, affordability, reliability, convenience. Right. Right? So figure out what to do that fits either at least one of these four things. Then you'll know you're doing the right thing. Awesome. Oh, that's a good take. That's a very good take. Yeah. Earlier, you did mention something about yeah. um, speed for a, comp- or for a startup, yep. right? So, in the conference one, you also mentioned about the company inertia yep. and how sometimes where companies can get too big to pivot. Mm-hmm. So, how do you define whether what's the size that where a company would be too big for it to pivot? Well, technically, there is no limitation. Mm-hmm. The only limitation exists in your mind. If you are prepared to fundamentally pivot, even as a big company, you can, but, but very few do, yeah. right? Uh, because oftentimes, especially if you become a public listed company, suddenly you have to report earnings every quarter. Suddenly, investors expect consistency, you know, like every, you know, profits growing 5 to 10% every single quarter. So your willingness to do something completely risky, you, you don't want to because you're, you're jeopardizing, right? Yeah. right? Which is a bit like if you think about it, so to be very blunt, let's take Astro as an example, mm-hmm. right? For 20 years, they've been dominant, right? Powerful satellite TV company in Malaysia, right? 
But suddenly, people say, why do we need a set-top box when our mobile phones have far more computing power than a set-top box? Mm. We don't need to wait for an installer to come to our house and you know, make an appointment for them to put the box. Yeah. And suddenly, if you want to change from your bedroom to your living room, I oh, have to get another box. Right. Why do we need channels? Because a channel is when someone else in programming decides your show will be on at Thursday at 8 p.m. And if you miss that, oh, you have to wait for a Sunday afternoon for the repeat. Mm. When you should be able to watch anything you want, wherever you want, without any limitation for boxes or channels, right? And so suddenly, the whole world of uh, satellite TV has changed. People realize, I don't need this anymore Correct. because I've got video on demand. Right? But because they've been doing it for so long, till today, their core business is set-top boxes and channels. Correct. Now, they have internet TV. They have video on demand. But they were not willing to disrupt their core business. Because if their core business is someone is paying them 100 ringgit a month, why would I encourage anyone to stop paying me 100 ringgit a month and move to a 10 ringgit a month online subscription? How then do I answer my quarterly investors? investors right? Yeah. So you treat this as a side project. You're not willing to change your core. But the problem is if you're not willing to challenge your core, someone else will do it for you. Mm. Right? Someone else will start to promote this because that is their sole existence. Now, interestingly, in that same industry, an example of a big company that completely pivoted, interestingly, was Netflix. Mm -hmm. So Netflix about, I'm going to say like, I forget now, 10, 12 years ago, is a completely different public listed company. Their business was online DVD delivery. Hmm. Maybe you're too young, but you yeah. know, I grew up in a time not only with renew, DVDs, renew but, but Netflix, VHSS, yeah. right? Yeah, 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 yeah. Where you paid 99 cents or $1.99 for a DVD to be delivered to your home, mm -hmm. right? And the whole model is blockbuster you have to go to the store and rent VHSs, right? Mm. But now I make it easy. You, you pick your movie and I'll deliver it to your home. But then they realized that's not the future. Why would someone pay per movie title, right? And they decided we're going to like stop this and we're going to start to bet on streaming. It caused a 70% reduction in revenue. Their share price plummeted by over 70% because instead of charging $1.99 per movie, they created a $7 unlimited all-you-can-eat online model. Yeah. So the analysts were like, oh, this is a massive drop in your revenue. Share price plummeted. Mm -hmm. Today, Netflix's value is like over 100 times more than their peak when they were only doing DVD sales. So you have to like go through the pain of disrupting yourself and rebuilding it into a completely new business entity. It can be done, but very few people are willing to absorb the short-term pain of redefining you. Mm -hmm. And that's what creates opportunities for crazy people like me because when the big people don't want to do it, that gives me an opportunity to do it from scratch. Mm -hmm. It's something similar to touch and go like mm -hmm. they were dominating the market for cashless payment for the yes. whole like for so long that's right but they never done anything about it until like grab came
came Absolutely. and start all of this e-wallet came and then That's they right. were, so I was quite like what the, like what the hell man <laughs> you had all this time to do it but now only want to do it what made you want to enter and lead iFlix when Netflix is already around and a lot of people has already been on that uh, particular platform so my philosophy and what I do is not driven by the industry it's not driven by the company it's not driven by the job it's certainly not driven by any salary or compensation there's one thing that I learned that matters the most it's the people that you're going to join or the people that you get to join you if these are people who inspire you these are people who energize you spend time with them because that's that makes work a lot more fun but you might join a bigger company with a higher salary, but the people are pricks, right? <laughs> then you're not going to have fun at all. You're not going to grow professionally. So I was attracted to smart people, but inspiring people, people who had ambition and drive and vision that I could learn from. Hmm. Even if that meant, for example, leaving uh, a job as the CEO of a public listed company that was over a billion US dollars in size, to join a startup, to join a CEO who was six years younger than me. But this guy was really smart. Mm. And I felt are, are you referring to Patrick? Or? No, Mark Britt. Patrick okay. matched this. So Patrick okay. had the vision of iFlix. He wanted Mark, who had built Internet TV in Australia, to come to Southeast Asia to build it. But Mark doesn't have any experience in Southeast Asia. So he said, look, I know Azran. Why don't you guys work together as a team and combine your different experiences? to build iFlix from scratch. Mm. Uh, and when I met Mark, you know, like literally from Monday morning breakfast, that afternoon we went to Patrick's, house, uh, Patrick's office and we said, all right, let's do this. Right. One day. Who knew? <laughs> yeah, that's how things start. Right. Right. Now, I want to talk about your documentary. Sure. <laughs> so, a broken crayon analogy. A broken crayon. Right. So, yes. the documentary talk about your recent, uh, not, I don't think it's recent, I think two, it's years like two years ago. Two years ago. Your um, accident, right? Mm -hmm. So, you did mention like our lives are like a box of crayons. Yes. Right? We can be nice and pretty, stay inside the box, but we were meant to be used up. We were meant to be uh, color the world, yes. right? And then, Sometimes when you color the world, it also means you'll damage yourself. Right? You'll get broken. Yeah, you'll get broken down. So how, how would you advise a person who right. is very demotivated by all of the different challenges that they have in their lives and not, not knowing how or don't have the motivation to pick themselves up back mm. up again? Well, first of all, there's no silver magic bullet answer because even when I realized I had a purpose and I started to feel motivated and a few days later, completely demotivated. So the journey is not like inflection point turn around, but you go through ups and downs, ups and downs. And we are terrible judges of our own situation, our own character. We don't know when we're down. We just start being very dark to everyone around us and then people start to stay away from us and it reinforces this big cycle. And so what I've learned is to surround myself with people who are positive, people who are supportive, but most importantly, people who are what I call mirrors. This is a very valuable trait that's rare. Someone who's willing to tell you like it is. Most people around us 
will tell you what they want you to know and want you to hear want you to hear yeah. as opposed to something where they just reflect back on you this is your situation um, and so I've been fortunate and privileged to have people around me who are my mirrors right who can tell me when I'm down and then instead of them saying okay do this to fix fix your situation by being a mirror they make me reflect on my situation and allow me to make my own decision about picking myself back up so the art is finding these mirrors in your life and who is your mirror and how did you find that person well uh, a number of people number one um, so there there's a group of about seven other peers, people who run uh, other businesses, and, and I got to meet them about 10 years ago. And we meet about eight times a year. Okay. And each time we meet, there's a very structured process. How do we share our updates? How do we learn from each other without telling each other what to do? The problem with most friends and family members, when you try to bring up a problem, they'll say, ayah, just do this, just see my guy, right? Everybody wants to just throw a solution at you. Giving someone else a solution disempowers them because when they are, they, they're doing it because you told them to do. They don't have the real conviction to come to that conclusion themselves. So the art of this is when we learn how to support each other not by telling each other what to do but sharing our experiences and reflecting back what people say that allows each of us to take away what we want from a group and because I see them eight times a year they know the situations and problems right by year five year six and now year ten they have very deep context uh, of, what's going on. of what's going on in my head right and and when they share, it, it clicks. There, and there's this level of trust that's hugely important as well, right? Most of us, if we only surround ourselves with the people at work, do I really tell my problems to my, my, my boss, my shareholders, my investors? What would they think of me? So right. I don't open up. I don't, I'm not willing to be vulnerable to my employees because they might think I'm a weak leader, right? I don't want to uh, open up to my family members because they may judge me. So we're trapped because we have no one where we can be open about, right? We don't have mirrors that we can trust with the big issues that we're wrestling with. This is the trap most of us find. And if you are in that situation, that's where that negative spiral comes in. That person who basically is trapped because he or she does not know where do I go to without being judged. Mm -hmm. Everyone around them is judging them. So that's why, now of course, if someone's already in that situation, you know, you really need professional help. But for those of us who are privileged to not already be in that situation, start by thinking about who are, I, who are my mirrors, who are people that I trust? How do I build the discipline to see them regularly? Maybe start with just four times um, uh, a year, right? But then the consistency where you learn from each other, you have mutual respect with each other, then they become powerful mirrors for you. Is this also one of the reasons why, I don't know if you started Naluri, but is this one of, one of the reasons why you are in this um, me mental health? Process? Absolutely, mm. because I've been in that situation. Um, also, I mean, one, one of the reasons why I was really determined to start Naluri was 
nine years ago, I lost my father to cancer and diabetes. Now at that time, right, we, none of us knew what is mental health. What I realized now is the doctors were only focused on his physical health. Take this medicine, do this chemo, do this radiotherapy, uh, eat this, don't eat that. Right? But cancer, you cannot fix with one single procedure. You have to live with it for years and months. Worse is if you are diabetic and you've got cancer because it means surgery becomes much more complicated. And when someone has to live with that, right, you start to realize, wow, he must have gone through a lot of depression and anxiety because suddenly, you know, you've been diagnosed with cancer. What does that mean? Like, do I lose my job? Who's going to take care of my family? Am I going to die? All these things start to occupy your mind and there is no support. And when there's no support, there's no mirrors, people go into a downward spiral, right? And unfortunately, today in Malaysia, more people die from suicide than all of wars, murders, and terrorism combined. So we are killing ourselves more than other people are killing us. But as a society, we're not ready to acknowledge that it's a real problem. We don't want to be stigmatized. We don't know where to turn to. So my belief is if I can create a digital solution so that anyone in the privacy of their bedroom can download an app and get help without being seen to get help, without being judged, maybe we can save a life, right? So that's why we started Naluri. Yeah, that's a good take. <laughs> that's a very good take. Yeah, we love that. And it look at all of them, they are all nodding their heads. <laughs> that's a good one, that's a good one. You also you mentioned earlier about your father's death and whatnot, right? And then everything involves, um, he has a lot of um, people that looks after him and whatnot. You yourself, you're a father and a husband. And then after that traumatic experience of the accident, and we still hear that you go back to Ironman and still compete. Mm -hmm. After all that has happened, right, um, what keeps you in the sport, even though you have so many things um, looking out, like needing you in their mm. lives? Okay. So one of the things I've learned is how do we build mental fitness? Mental health and mental fitness is not just an illness or a weakness. Just like physical health is not just diabetes or cancer. Physical health, we understand, is someone who's strong, someone who's fast, someone who's flexible, someone who's, uh, you, know, uh, you know, physically can do many things. Likewise, mental health, you can train to become mentally fitter. You can be more resilient, you can be more optimistic, you can be more focused, you can be more curious you can be more socially connected. But like physical fitness, me telling you that doesn't make you mentally fit, right? Like if you just go to a gym for one day, you're not going to be physically fit. You have to be consistent, right? So what Ironman does for me is actually not the race, it's the lifestyle and preparation for it. Because if you know you've got a race at the end of the year, like every morning, I don't think, it's like automatic, right? Okay, Mondays are rest days, Tuesdays are swimming days, Wednesdays are cycling days, Thursdays are running days, uh, Fridays back to swimming, Saturdays are long bike ride, Sundays are long uh, run. It becomes automatic. And it's also for me the time that I can be very present and put away all the pressures 
of the external world, right? I focus on my breathing. When I swim, I count breaths. Well, you have to because you have to know what your stroke count is. When I cycle, I become much more aware of my breathing. When I run, for example, I focus on exhaling left foot when the left foot hits down and then odd numbers, right foot hits down. You know? So by focusing on that, I'm, I'm training my brain to be extremely focused on what I do and I put away all the day-to-day worries and stresses and concerns. And even if it's just for that one hour, it creates, it allows your mind to recharge. The best analogy is, what is the difference in running the marathon portion of an Ironman triathlon versus running a standalone marathon, like Standard Chartered in KL? Mm-hmm. What do you think is the main difference? Because you have other, um, other things to do, like you have, you have to conserve your energy. Yeah, but th- what does that mean? Well, specifically, all these standalone marathons, they start before dawn, mm-hmm. right? Four o'clock in the morning. Why? Putri Lilin. They don't, they're afraid of the sun, <laughs> right? So they want to run most of the time when the sun is not out. But to start the marathon portion of an Ironman, you first have to swim in the morning, then you've got to cycle. Mm-hmm. By the time you run, it is <laughs> one o'clock, two o'clock in the afternoon, the sun is beating hard on you. Yeah. Now, what does an Ironman triathlete do during that marathon? Because the sun is beating hard on you. You'll notice they look for tree shade. So along the road, every time there's you know, a tree, even for that one second that I run under the shade, right? Over 42 kilometers, little bit of shade helps compared to running exposed to the sun nonstop for four hours, right? It makes a massive difference. Try it if you ever (laughs) one day feel inspired, right? So small bits of respite help to sustain you. So likewise in life, we're all under a lot of stresses and pressures. If you don't have the small moments in your life, like that tree shade, right, you will be overwhelmed with that stress. It just grows and grows and gets worse and worse and you suddenly feel out of control. But short moments where you can put away the stress and pressure, you have something to focus on that, of course, also helps you focus on your breathing, focus on you know, being very aware of your physical body, that is like my tree shade on my life. And that is why the whole Ironman lifestyle is hugely important for me because life is a long, long journey. It's like, you know, the marathon journey in life, that one minute of that tree, one second of that tree shade is like my one hour of training every morning. That was good. Fazil was right regarding how you are a very, very great speaker. And he was, he was very pressured to come after you. Oh, so okay. he insists to be before you. <laughs> right. So um, can, can you share us a little bit about like, um, I think you said once like the pain of risk is bigger than pain of uh, regrets. regrets, right? Yes. So what is the biggest um, thing or action that you mostly regret oh. not doing? But if you have done it, you might or might be slightly a little bit ahead in your life. Mm, wow. That's a very good question. Um, I come back to people decisions. 
they are the best decisions and the proudest accomplishments of my professional career, but they've also been the worst decisions and the biggest disappointments of my professional career. When I make wrong people decisions, it has been catastrophic, right? So this is where, when I look back at the biggest disappointments, you know, for example, um, you know, I've hired very senior executives who've turned out to be crooks and steal money from the company, right? I've gone into business with investors who turn out to be, uh, you know, to start suing you and trying to take away the whole business from you. I've had people, you know, throw lawsuits at me. And when you look back and you realize not everyone perhaps has a properly aligned values compass, right? They are motivated by self-interest and not necessarily the interests of your common, um, the vision that we talked about earlier. Therefore, my biggest mistake has been when I was too impressed with people's resumes, their backgrounds, oh, I really want them on the team, right? They work for blue chip companies and all of that. But you don't go deep enough to really assess their values. And then you don't pay attention to it when they start working with you and suddenly it leads to catastrophic failure. And I have no one else to blame except myself because I wasn't aware. I did not pay attention to the people decisions. So in life for me, what you'll know here again and again, the single most important decisions we make in our lives is who do we choose to spend our time with at work or in our personal lives. Is there any difference like how you hire people? Very much so. Mm. Here's what I've learned. Having interviewed, I'm sure by now, thousands of candidates, what I've learned is during the interview, I am at best 50% accurate. A thousand candidates spending at least one hour each, that's 50,000 hours of my life down the line. I should have just flipped a coin. Do I hire this person (laughs) or not, right? Same level of accuracy. At the point of interview, we're actually terrible judges of character because what I shared earlier, right? Mm-hmm. Because you're biased by that first 10 second reaction. Correct. What I now learn is, okay, I may not make a good decision at the point that I hire, but within three months of that person joining my team, now I have a better idea because I've seen them work with me and my team. I've seen the quality. Some people during interviews are oh, very impressive. They speak well, they're full of energy. When they join your team, all of that is gone, right? Whereas some people may not be that impressive at the point of interview, but you somehow decide, okay, and they turn out to be superstars. So you don't know at the point of interview, but you know three months out. What we need to do is figure out how do we close the loop and get better at hiring by closing the loop. 99% of people do not do this. They make that one decision at the hiring point independently then when someone turns out to be bad, they don't look back at their notes. Whereas what we need to do is to say, okay, that person didn't turn out well, that person turned out much better than what I thought. Go back to your notes and say, what did you assess them on this characteristic, this characteristic, this characteristic? Maybe certain characteristics you always assess in an interview. Turns out 50-50, 
Some people work well, some people did not work out well. That means that interview assessment is useless. Mm-hmm. It doesn't statistically predict whether someone's going to be a good fit for your team or not. Correct. But other characteristics may not. So we need to close the loop and learn from every person that we've hired. But most people don't. Right? So if we can figure out how do we close that loop, we're going to get better at knowing who are the right people who will fit our team and our culture at that particular point. Awesome. Before we end this podcast, mm-hmm. um, is there anything you want to say to um, aspiring entrepreneurs that they really want to make it in this business world? Is there anything that you want to say to them? Well, so I get a lot of proposals uh, from LinkedIn. I get a lot of people coming up to me and saying, I've got the best business idea. Including myself. <laughs> um, what I've learned is this. Every single business plan that I've seen, none of it will materialize within six months, definitely within 12 months. So ideas don't count. Business is not about ideas. You'll be surprised that people say, well, you know, I cannot tell you exactly what my business is until you sign an NDA and, uh, you know, until, you know, ideas don't count. What counts is, for me, it's backing people. People make all the difference. Are these people, do they, first of all, understand the problem that they want to solve? And do they not fall in love with their solution? And you can tell, right? If someone can clearly articulate the problem that they're tackling and they're more passionate about the problem than their product, that is the right person. There are other people who believe in their product so much because they've invested time. I've designed this product. This product is great. Well, from what I've seen, none of my products have ever turned out well version one. You need to get to like version 27 before it <laughs> makes sense. Right? But to get from one to 27, you've got to be willing to throw it away, start again, throw it away and start again. But you need to be, number one, if you define the problem well, you don't fall in love with your product. You are curious and humble enough to recognize that and to know if it doesn't go well, I need to change. That is how we decide this is the right people to back. So if you're an inspiring entrepreneur, fall in love with the problem, do not fall in love with your product. Awesome, awesome. Thank you so much for coming over in this podcast. It was a great, 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 great time having you Thank here you very much because, for having me. Because this has been long awaited. I think we held this out for five months and it's finally amazing to have this done and dusted well, now. Well, you know, kudos to you. Thank you. Because you made an effort, yeah. right? Most people will say, well, there's no way it could happen. When you don't try, you've already lost, right? Correct. So you took that first step and you didn't give up. Yeah. Thank you, sir. That will, right. they will take you very far in life. Thank you. Awesome. Well, those are the words from Mr. Azran Osmarani. So thank you so much for joining us for this fifth episode of the podcast. And I'll see you guys again in the next one. Ciao. Thank you so much to all of you that's been listening to the podcast for all five opening episodes. When we first started off this podcast, we don't know what would work. We don't know what would not work. We just do it and hope for the best. As for the podcast, our first pilot season has ended and there were so many great takeaways, so many great nuggets that was shared from our guests and we were so, so grateful to have them on our shows. We want to thank each and every one of our guests for letting us at Insporium to have the opportunity to have them as our guests. We truly, truly appreciate it. And we also want to thank each and every one of you from the depths of our hearts 
for spending your time and investing your time listening to our podcast. We hope we have helped you get a little bit clearer and get more insights on all the topics we've discussed about over the past five episodes. On behalf of the team of at Insporium, we hope you are living your best life and staying safe during these trying times. It's a little bit hard, but we are going to get through it. Tough times don't last, tough people do. Look forward to our season 2 where we dive deep into the creative industry in Malaysia. My name is Riz and as the founder of Insporium, signing off for season 1 of the Inspo Depot podcast. See you again soon in the next one.